Beloved, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, your Bibles should be just flopping open to uh, Romans uh, these days. If you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 8. And uh, we are looking once again at verses 2 through 4 uh, this morning. Uh, I'll read from verse 1 for context. And we are uh, in our second sermon uh, on verses 2 through 4. We'll focus mainly on verses 3 and 4 this morning. Romans 8, uh, beginning in verse 1. Please hear the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your Word. Your Word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and we pray that it would indeed pierce to the deepest parts of our soul that it would convict us of our sin, that it would point and direct our eyes to the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, your own Son, our Lord and King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In C.S. Lewis's uh, famous children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene that mirrors Calvary. And it's a rather gruesome Scene, one that could give small children nightmares, uh, in fact. Uh, Aslan, uh, the great lion, the hope of Narnia, the, the Messiah figure in the Narnia tales, willingly surrendered himself into the hands of the white witch and all the forces of darkness. And as he made his way to the stone table where he would be sacrificed for the crime of another, the powerful and loving lion was tied up by the evil hags and wicked dwarves and apes. They took out scissors and cut off his beautiful shiny mane, and together they ripped out all of his fur. He was surrounded by a thick crowd of wicked creatures who were, in the words of Lewis, kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, And jeering at him. The two children, the two characters in uh, the story, Lucy and Susan, watched from a distance with disbelief and many tears. Why doesn't he defend himself? They said. Why is he letting them do this to him? Finally, the white witch wet her knife, a knife of what Lewis describes as a strange, of a strange and evil shape. And she killed him, running him through. Aslan, the great lion, the hope of Narnia, the one who was supposed to end the long winter, was dead 
Those of you who have read the book know what a moving scene this is. Some of you may have watched Hollywood's version of it on the big screen. It's a, a stirring and whimsical scene depicting the fierce battle between good and evil, between light and darkness, a battle that appears to have been won by the wrong side. Why didn't Aslan defend himself? Why did he have to die? These were honest questions that the children, the main characters in the story, were asking. How can Aslan be dead? He was our Savior. He was our Savior. What they didn't understand at the time, of course, was that he had to die in order to be the Savior. He had to die in order to be the Savior. Redemption and salvation required payment for sin. And while innocent, Aslan was willing to make that payment with his very own life. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What the Narnia, Narnia tale doesn't mention, however, is any kind of a father figure of Aslan. Who was Aslan's father? The focus is on Aslan alone, on his suffering and sacrifice to liberate Eustace from the white witch's clutches. And sadly, many view the gospel of Jesus Christ on these terms as well. All of the attention almost solely is placed upon Jesus Christ to the exclusion of God the Father, the one who sent Jesus into the world, the one who gave him over to the cross for our salvation. And what we must not miss in our text for this morning is that God the Father's saving love is on full display. It is in focus, even as each member of the Holy Trinity is in view. Do you see it? Paul declared in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And I, of course, have unpacked these uh, verses in previous messages. But in these verses, we, we've heard that this Romans 8.1 is a, a summary of, of the previous seven chapters, the conclusion of the matter, the, the summary of all that's been said from Romans 1.1 to uh, the end of Romans uh, 7 is that there is therefore, uh, because of Christ's work for us, because of Christ's righteousness, because of Christ's death on the cross, because of the gift of faith and our receiving of him, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that is, united to him, in him, not having a righteousness of our own, which is found according to the law, but a righteousness that is in Christ, and it is ours through faith, Philippians chapter 3. And then he goes on to say that we are set free, that the principle or law of the spirit of life, namely the Holy Spirit, in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law or principle of sin and death. No longer are we under the dominion of sin and death, 
slaves to sin, under the law and its crushing demands. Now we have been set free by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus to be forgiven, to walk with the Lord, to walk in the Spirit. No longer are we under the dominion of sin and death and hell and Satan, enslaved to sin and under the law. Now we are under grace. We are under the dominion of the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we are in union. We are united to him. And united to him, we have a right standing with God. We no longer live in this sphere. We now live in Christ. Amen? That is so important for us to remember as Christian believers. We are no longer in bondage to sin. The way that a lot of Christians understand their own walk with the Lord is that somehow they are still in bondage to sin, that they're still living in here or perhaps just swinging back and forth. If you're in Christ, you have one master and his name is Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are no longer under the master sin. You are no longer under the crushing demands of the law as a means of salvation, which you fail at every day. In Christ, you are under the dominion of grace, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are united to him. And what's true of him is true of us in terms of our standing with God. Because we are robed in his very righteousness. We are forgiven of our sins. We've been declared just by the Father. And so all of these things we have touched upon over the past couple of weeks. But what we haven't done is drilled down into verses 3 and 4 and some of the things we learn about the love of God the Father and also of the work of God the Son. Now, it's always wonderful, isn't it, to, to, to spend some time thinking about the love of God the Father. Over and over and over again, what I've learned in my lifetime is that so many people have insecurities in their life They struggle with really believing that God loves them because they had a father, an earthly father, who did not love them. And it's absolutely heartbreaking to hear the stories. I grew up in a home uh, with a father who loved me. And that's not true, I'd say, probably of most people. And so there's this struggle can God the Father really love me when I did not know the love of my earthly father? I never really experienced that. What does that even mean? How do, I, how do I experience that? How do I think about that? But it's emphasized. Sadly, at times, it's not emphasized, however. At times, there is this emphasis on Christ to the exclusion of the Father. The Father is only depicted as one who is... Who is um, the, the, the God of wrath and judgment, the judge, and Christ is saying, don't do it, Father. Don't, don't smash them. Smash me. Crush me. And there, there's an element of, of truth that he's taken on the wrath of the Father in our stead. But it is absolutely not true that God is just this God of wrath who just wants to, to take out all the sinners. And Jesus is saying, don't do it, Father. And there's nothing of the love of the Father in the work of the gospel. Beloved, the gospel is God the Father's idea, if I can put it like that. It was his purpose. Before the foundation of the world, Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us before the foundation of the world, and he gave his son for us. And notice the emphasis in our text for this morning. Look there in verse 3. 
For God has done, that is God the Father has done, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Okay, so what do we learn there? Basically, we learn that God has done it. The law hasn't done it. We've been learning that all throughout chapter 7. God has done it. How? By sending his own son, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, that is God the Father, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is, the focus here is the love and the saving work of the Father and what he has done by sending his own Son, what love. What love. You know, there's a very, very moving scene in the biography of John Payton. That's P-A-T-O-N. Some would pronounce it as Patton, but it's actually Payton. John Payton, I uh, gave a biographical lecture on Payton, the great missionary to the New Hebrides a couple of weeks ago. And there's a very, very touching scene of the son, the oldest of 11 children, whom his father delighted in. And his son loved and respected his father so much. And his father was a man of piety, a man of prayer, a man of God. And the son was a passionate man. And he was about to leave to go to the New Hebrides, which, are, which, which is modern-day Vanuatu, in order to minister to the islanders there, many of whom were cannibals. And the scene is beautiful as the father prays for his son and the son says goodbye to his father. And as he's, as he's walking into the distance, he's looking back and he continues to see his father as his father fades uh, out of view. But this, this father is, is sending his son knowing that there's a very high possibility that his son will die. And within three months of being on the island, one of the 80 islands that make up that, that area, that his young wife and baby did die within three months of being there. But it's a very moving story to think about the father sending his son. That's one of the challenges in mission work is fathers being willing to send their sons into challenging places to reach people for Christ. But we get a, some sense of the love of the father sending his, it doesn't just say son here, his own son. It's emphasis there. He sent his own son into the world to save sinners like you and me. And so we have, first of all, the first point this morning is the saving love of God the Father in contrast to the law. We touched upon this uh, last time, of course. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law could not do. God has done what the law could not do. Maybe that's something you should say when you wake up in the morning. God has done what the law could not do. What the law could not do, God did. 
through his son. What does this mean? Well, again, here Paul is returning to the main point of chapter 7, isn't he? That due to our fallen condition, due to the nature of indwelling sin, which plagues us in Adam, we are unable to do that which the law commands. The law is perfect and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. But due to original sin, we are incapable of obeying it as we ought. We may agree that the law is good. We may make earnest attempts to obey the law. But we end up not doing the things we want to do and doing the things we don't want to do. Ever had that experience? Our weakness, our human frailty, our sin has made the law powerless to give us a right standing with God. That's what it means there when it says in verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. It is we who are weak because of sin, not the law that is bad or weak somehow, but because of our sin, the law is powerless to bring us and usher us into the saving presence of God. That's Paul's point here. God has done, therefore, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He sent his own son. Our sins make the law weak to save. The law is impotent to bring us to heaven. So don't trust the law. Don't put your focus on the law and and what you are doing or not doing or will possibly do in the future. It is extraordinary to me that even people under the preaching of the gospel, the clear preaching of the gospel, will still walk away from it or wake up in the morning and think that their relationship with God is based on what they do or do not do. I see it all of the time. I shared a story many years ago of of R.C. Sproul, who was teaching a course on justification, a Sunday school class, and there were many people there. A couple hundred were in the class. It was a larger church. And so uh, he one day decided he was going to take uh, a poll. And so he, 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 he had a questionnaire, and he just asked simple questions of the people who were sitting under his teaching for weeks and weeks and weeks on justification. And when he got the answers back, he was overwhelmed with grief because people were still putting their hope and their trust in their own works, how they were doing spiritually, how they were performing for God and not putting their hope and their trust in the righteousness of Christ. This is true of so many, of all, really, of the religions outside of Christianity, this focus on good works. I remember many years ago, I was in Juan Cavalica, Peru, uh, there was a period where I was going to Peru once or twice a year, and uh, I've probably been there about 20 times. Uh, really, a piece of my heart is there. And I was up in the mountains, in the Andes Mountains, and I came across, the, you know, we were in a town where there weren't too many uh, white people around. And so I saw this young man. I said, surely that must be, uh, you know, an American or European or something. He walked up, and he was, he was American. In fact, he was from Utah. He was from Utah, and you can guess who he was a missionary for. He was a Mormon. And we struck up a conversation. And um, he said, uh, oh, what are, you, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm actually doing a pastor's conference. He said, oh, what, what, what kinds of things are you teaching? I'm like, oh, you know, some things like the Trinity, um, 
We're talking about Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. You know, stuff like that. So, oh, great. Yeah, it's great. So, um, so I said, let me ask you a question. I said, um, you're up here. You're sharing with people. You've been sent here by the Mormon church to, to, to evangelize, I assume. Yes, yes, that's right. I said, tell me the good news. Tell me the news that you are sharing with people in Juan Cavalita. I'm, 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 I'm curious. I'm, I'm genuinely interested. He said, he kind of got a little nervous and said, uh, okay, sure. And then he starts speaking in Spanish, this spiel he had learned. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, I can understand a good bit of what you're saying. However, I really just want you to say it in your own words. I don't want you to give some Spanish spiel that you learned in Utah in your training. I want to hear in your own words how I can be saved, how I can be made right with God. So he stood there and said, um, well, you need to love your family and just do your best in life. I said, and? He said, that, that's just about it. And I said, um, with all due respect, I said, that doesn't sound like good news to me. And I said, can I share with you what I'm sharing here in Wancavalita? And so I began to walk through the gospel with him, that, that it's impossible for us to, to love our family as we ought, to love our neighbor as we ought, to love God as we ought, that we fail miserable, miserably in these things. And so, so, so how is it that we can be made right with a holy God. Well, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, to, to bear our sins on Calvary and to, to pay for our redemption and to, to give us new life and to give us the gift of righteousness. And so we stand before God no longer condemned, but now declared righteous because of what Christ has done. Now that is good news. And um, he, he said, yeah, we believe that too. I said, no, you don't. He said, yes, you do. I said, no, you don't. He said, yes, you do. I said, no, you don't. I'm not kidding. This is the way the conversation went. I said, I know enough about the Mormon religion to know that what you said to me earlier is exactly what it is. And I said, and I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to read Christian books apart from your Mormon religion because your Mormon religion is going to take you to hell. And everybody that you tell about this, you'll drag them there with you. Of course, he was shaking a little bit at this point. And, uh, and, and, and I said, I'm telling you this because I love you. And the Lord has ordained this meeting with you and me right here in his providence. And uh, so anyway, that conversation ended just after that um, bit. But, you know, who knows how the Lord will use it. But here's the thing. Some people, even within the Christian church, even some under faithful gospel preaching, will continue to think somehow that it's what we do that makes us right with God and not what Christ has already done. Do you know what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. What's it? Your salvation. Your redemption. He paid it all. Can you imagine how terrible that hymn would sound if we sang, Jesus paid some of it. I mean, Jesus paid it all. Amen? He paid it all, and we can rest in that. 
as his, his people. What the law was powerless to do, God did. But what did he do? Well, this is the second major point, the saving love of God the Father in the sending of his own Son. Again, the verse states, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son. We have echoes here of Genesis 22. Abraham, go and get your son, your only son, and take him up and sacrifice him. Your own son, your only son. We hear the echoes of the father declaring, this is at Christ's baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The father loves his son. And God the father sent his own son, his own eternal son, the third person of the Holy Trinity, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father by whom all things were made, God sent his beloved, the the apple of his eye, the prince of glory. And it couldn't have been any other way, could it? Only a mediator who is both God and man could save us. Last Lord's Day evening in my uh, message on uh, Zacharias Ursinus, and the making of the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563, I, I read a series of questions and answers, and there are just a couple of them that really help us here as it concerns this point, and really a, a, a theological point in our passage that we must get. Question 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What sort of mediator and deliverer must we seek for? Answer, for one who is very man, a real man, fully man, and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Question 16, we must, excuse me, why must he be ver- very man and also perfectly righteous? This is key, because the justice of God requires the same human nature which hath sinned. That's why we are going to see, it says in Romans 8, 3 and 4, that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin to condemn sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh, but you know whose sin he condemned in Christ's flesh? Your sin. My sin. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. 10,000 people could die for you on a cross and do so out of love and sacrifice, but not one of them or all of them together, all the blood together could not pay for one sin because those individuals are sinners themselves. Number 17, why must he be in one person 
be also very God. Answer, that he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore us to righteousness and life. Question 18, who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and real righteous man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. Beloved, this is the thrust of the apostles' point here. What the law could not do, what we could not do, God did. Sending his own son. He sent his own son. Don't miss the drama of this great salvation that's been accomplished for you and for me. How did God send him? Just a couple of points here. First of all, we notice he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice that little phrase there in the likeness of sinful flesh. And notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that God sent Jesus in sinful flesh. He says in the likeness of sinful flesh. He doesn't say that Jesus was born of natural generation and assumed a sinful human nature when he became man. No, we know that he was born of a virgin. We're going to be thinking of uh, the advent and the coming of Christ in his birth to the Virgin Mary. He was not born of natural generation. He was born of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's where he was conceived and born. The Bible says that God sent his Son from heaven in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why is this an important distinction? Because in order for Jesus to be a perfect and true mediator, he had to be free from sin. He had to be sinless and not sinful. He had to be a righteous and acceptable sacrifice for our sins. But interestingly, Paul employs the phrase likeness of sinful flesh. He does this, he does this, dear ones, to underscore, to underscore that the humanity Jesus assumed was not, in fact, the the pre-fall humanity. It wasn't the same Humanity, as it were, in terms of the state or nature of that humanity, as it was in pre-fall Adam. This phrase, likeness of sinful flesh, is a curious one. And it teaches us that Jesus, again, did not assume the pre-fall humanity of Adam. Rather, it was the post-fall humanity of Adam, a humanity that experienced infirmity, suffering, and even death, yet without the corruption of indwelling sin. So Christ assumed our human nature in post-fall humanity, thus experiencing the things that we will not experience in heaven and the things that Adam didn't experience before the fall, namely infirmities, death. Jesus took on a Weakened human nature, but not a sinful one. That's what this phrase means. God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. St. Augustine explains, quote, What does sinful flesh have? Death and sin. What does the likeness of sinful flesh have? Death without sin. 
And he goes on. If it had sin, it would be sinful flesh. If it did not have death, it would not be the likeness of sinful flesh. As such, he came. He came as Savior. He died, but he vanquished death. I love John Owen's, the title of his famous book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. That's what it was. Christ's death killed death. Augustine concludes by saying, in himself he put an end to what we feared. He took it upon himself and he vanquished it. What a mighty Savior. What a mighty Savior. The great old Princeton theologian Charles Hodge adds, quote, Christ took our physically dilapidated nature subject to the infirmities which sin had brought into it. He was therefore susceptible of pain, weariness, and sorrow. He could be touched with our infirmities. He is therefore a merciful and trustworthy high priest. Dear one, are you hurting physically? We won't have a show of hands this morning. But being your pastor, I know that many of you are hurting physically. And uh, many of you, probably every Sunday, sit down in these comfortable chairs and you praise God that we're no longer in Moultrie Middle School on the benches because you have a bad back or you have difficulty with your neck or you have various kinds of painful struggles, illnesses, infirmities. Dear one, here's something for you to ponder. The Lord Jesus Christ knows how you feel. He has felt that pain. In fact, he has felt pain of a greater measure than any of us have ever felt when he was hanging on the cross at Calvary, suffocating as he was hanging there for you and for me. Christ is a perfect high priest. He took on our human flesh without sin. The work of redemption had to be accomplished in our nature by the Son of God, for it was our nature that had sinned against God. And this is the next thing that Paul is emphasizing. Notice with me in your text that God sent his own Son. What are those next two words? For sin. He sent him for sin. He didn't send him merely to be a good example or to be a wise teacher. No, he sent him for sin, to expiate or atone for all of our sin. He sent his own son for sin. In these Greek words, uh, for sin, we hear echoes of Old Testament sacrifices. Peri hamartas, uh, for sin. Uh, one commentator states that, quote, the phrase often appears in connection with sacrifices and offerings that deal with human sin in Greek-speaking Judaism and early Christianity. If you look in the uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament, you'll see this kind of configuration all over the place. Offerings for sin, Numbers 8.8. 8. And you shall take a bull from the herd for a sin offering. Leviticus 6.24 and 25. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. But these sacrifices were never enough, were they? All the blood of the bulls and the, the calves and the, uh, the sheep and the lambs that were spilled in all of those centuries, all of the, 
the, the, the millions of gallons of blood that had spilled from the tabernacle and the temple, none of it, not one drop would do to actually pay for our sins. And all of it was joyfully anticipating the coming of the Lamb of God who would shed his own blood efficaciously for the sins of the elect, for sinners. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why is that? Well, we've already mentioned it. Since humanity has sinned, only one who shares our humanity can make things right with God. So God, our loving Father, sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now here's the kicker. To condemn sin in the flesh. His own Son. He sent His own Son to condemn sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? You might have read that in the past and thought, that means something about Him condemning sin in my flesh or in humanity. No, this is talking about God condemning your sin and my sin in the person of Jesus. Let that sink in for a moment. God the Father sends His Son to condemn your sin in Him. He punished His Son for you. Boys and girls, I want to talk to you for just a minute. Imagine this. Your brother or your sister knocks over a plant in the house and the dirt goes everywhere. Water, dirt everywhere. And then, being the kids that you are, you begin to stomp around in it. And then you walk around the house, and there's mud and dirt all over the house. And when your parents get home, you, who knocked over the plant and did all of this, point to your brother and say, he did it. I didn't do it. He did it. Now, I know you would never do this. I know this has never happened. But imagine doing that, how terrible that would be. Now, imagine another scenario. You knock over the plant, and, you, and, and you, your parents get home. There's, a, there's stuff everywhere, and your, your parents say, who did this? And before you can get it out that I did it, you're going to be honest. And you say, your brother raises his voice and says, I did it. I did it. I want to take that. I want to take the punishment for this. You see, what Jesus does is he... He is actually taking on himself the punishment, the penalty that we deserve. God condemned sin. He poured out his wrath on sin. He, he gave the ultimate penalty for sin, which is hell, to his son. I heard recently from someone I was evangelizing that this is the worst doctrine in, in Christianity, the substitutionary penal atonement of Christ, but actually it's the greatest, and it's at the very core and center of Christianity. God condemned our sin in the flesh of Jesus. This is propitiation. Ambrosiaster, the early church father, said this, quote, God condemned sin in the flesh in the very place where it sinned. That is humanity. And this makes verses like 1 John 4, 9, and 10 so wonderfully clear. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, that is, 
not that we have obeyed the law as we ought, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is kind of a technical theological term. It simply means this, that Christ turned God's wrath away from us onto himself. He is our propitiation. He is the mercy seat. His blood poured out for the salvation of his people. And finally, in this text, we see that all of this took place. Why? Look with me at the good news of verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. If you read question and answers 60 and 61 of the Heidelberg Catechism, you'll see there the truth that to be justified by grace through faith, robed in the righteousness of Christ, we are justified not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done, that it is as if we never sinned. Because we stand before God justified and robed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us legally, but also there's another sense to this. There's not only a forensic or legal dimension, there's a practical or experiential dimension. That is, the law is fulfilled in us when we live by faith and we walk in the Spirit. So the law is being fulfilled in us as we live a life unto the Lord in union with Christ. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says this, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Fulfilling the law means loving your neighbor. If you are united to Christ, you are in him, you are now possessed by the Spirit of God, now you live according to that, that new law, that law of love. Trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, but living according to his word. Listen to Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So there's a sense in which we are in Christ, fulfilling the law as his people when we are in him, saved by him, redeemed by him, and walking in the Spirit according to the word of God. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. And so what happens is we go from being lawbreakers who are trusting in ourselves, who are worshiping idols, who are living in sin, who are under the dominion of sin, who are under the law and its crushing demands, impossible to obey. And God, by his grace, uh, saves us through the proclamation of the gospel. He brings us into union with Christ. Now we are under grace. We are under the dominion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He now is our king. He's given us his spirit, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So no longer are we uh, living according to that law of sin and death. Now we're living according to 
the, the freedom of the Spirit of God, the freedom of the sons of God in Christ. And we are living lives now that are in fulfillment of this law. Again, we're not adding to what Christ has done. We are in Christ. He's done it all. But in Him, by His Spirit, we are now living a life in obedience, growing obedience, imperfect obedience, but obedience to the law of God. And you say, well, pastor, what happens to our good works? Well, over here, our good works are simply bad good works, and they are going to bring further condemnation on us because we think our good works are going to save us. But over here, our good works are sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like uh, the child who goes outside and grabs a bunch of uh, weeds and maybe gets a couple flowers in there, but it's kind of ugly and brings it into mom. And, 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 and before mom gets home, dad comes in and he takes out all the, 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 the bad bits and he, he pulls out the weeds and he pulls out the little bugs that, that were on there and he, and he puts in, he grabs some of the roses and flowers he had bought for his wife the week before and he puts it in there and now it's beautiful. It's been made, our good works have been made beautiful. And as our good works through, come through the hands of our mediator, they come to the Father as a sweet-smelling aroma. Isn't that wonderful? So that your good works are not useless. They're not meaningless. They're actually bringing glory to God. And they truly are good works. Good works in Christ. Again, in no way adding to the grounds of our salvation, but as a demonstration of our thanksgiving and our faith in Christ. And so, dear ones, as we close, believe this good news. Can it be said enough? Believe this good news. The Father sent His Son to save you. He sent His Son, His own Son, a perfect mediator. Trust in Him. Put your confidence in him. Give him yourself. All of you. Mind, heart, will, affections, future, pain, suffering, joys, sorrows, all your possessions. Surrender your life to him. Kneel to him as your king and as your Lord and your savior. Trust in him. Put your faith in him. Secondly, live a grateful life in the Spirit. We're going to be hearing over and over and over again in Romans chapter 8, basically a commentary on this last phrase in verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8 is just all about that, what it means to walk in the Spirit and not to walk in the flesh. And if you are truly united to Christ, you will in some measure walk according to the Spirit, and you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that is the Christian life, isn't it? Seeking to do so more faithfully along life's way. So live a grateful life in the Spirit, not a worldly life in the flesh. Live as one who no longer bears God's just condemnation because Christ bore it for you on the cross, paying for your sins in His flesh. God the Father pouring out His wrath upon his son, condemning your sin and my sin in his flesh that you would know his life and salvation and that you would live your life for his glory. And finally, I'll end as I did last week. Be who you are. You are therefore now no 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are set free. And so live like it. By God's grace. By the power of God's spirit. Through faith. Live like it. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time and your word. And we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and help us to respond to it with faith, resting our faith in Christ alone for our redemption and with love for you and for our neighbor as we seek to honor you and to fulfill your law. We thank you that, that legally and forensically uh, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us and you are fulfilling it in us even as we carry out your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.